Thanks for joining us on Ojai Talk of the Town. The Ojai Playwrights Conference has been bringing together the country's most talented writers, dramaturgs, directors, and actors to Upper Ojai for two weeks of intensive workshops for more than 20 years. For this episode, we talk with Robert Egan, the artistic director and producer of this prestigious festival, to learn about their ambitious expansion and new direction that will allow the festival to meet this moment. Hey, Bob, thanks for joining me. My pleasure, Brett. Yeah, it's been a while since we've clapped eyes on each other. In fact, I really uh, miss the energy of the festival, the circus atmosphere coming to town. All these great creative people making great creative projects, and we're, we're the lesser for it. Well, and so are we for not being there. I have to say that. Yeah. We miss the audience. We miss the community. We miss the, you know, incredible support and volunteerism that we get from, you know, a whole lot of very special people up in Ohio, both in the housing and meals and, you know, not yeah, to mention well, the, a- the feedback we get in the, to the plays. Yeah, and you've developed that audience, what, now, for 23-plus years? I think I'm 20 years into it. 20 years, yeah. Yeah, I think we're twenty, a little over 20. It was in existence for three years before I got there, and then I arrived. And uh, it, it really, I mean, we've changed it completely over the 20 yeah, years. Yeah, I know. It's... Uh got to be one of the premier workshop festival programs in the country i don't i really don't have any basis for comparison i think we are one of the premier i mean uh, the the litmus test is great actors great actors playwrights directors dramaturgs wanting to return year after year after year so yeah that's been the case with us can you hear something rumbling uh, well, there's there's always going to be a little bit of hiss and crackle because of the I'm wi- hearing a Wi-Fi rumble. connections. A no, rumble, I'm not. Rumble. Let me uh, turn off my fan. See if that makes a difference. How's that? Yes, yes you did. There it goes. It's wet. Okay. So, um, yeah, just real quick, the uh, festival this year. You're taking a virtual approach. You've designated 15 plays from several hundred that are submitted. And uh, you're, this is a whole different approach. Can, can you tell us about it? Yeah, we, um, we read, uh, you know, close to 500 plays, as we always do. And um, when we were, you know, in our final selection process where we had narrowed down the 500 plays, to about 15, and then out of those 15, we usually choose eight, curate eight plays. Um, for a whole lot of different reasons, they end up uh, in the program. And uh, the reasons are we like uh, good geographical diversity, so we, we want at least half of the plays to represent Southern California and the artists that choose to live there. And then the other half come from all over the country and sometimes the world. And we obviously really want uh, ethnic and cultural diversity and uh, ideological diversity. 
and career diversity. So we have young playwrights and older playwrights. That you, all of those things just enrich the developmental conversation, which helps the writers because our primary, primary mission is we want to assist, help, serve in a collaborative way to help the writers fulfill their visions with their plays. So we were in that thing, we got down, and then the pandemic hit. Um, and so you'd already made your selections before the We had made lockdown. our selections in internally, but had yet to enter the phase of contacting the playwrights and making any kind of public statement about who were the artists we were going to work with. And uh, so we knew uh, as it got, you know, worse and worse and as the federal government resisted any attempt to help with any kind of national policy, um, we could see this was not going to get better quick. And, uh, you know, we didn't want to expose both our artists and uh, the community in Ojai having people travel in. So we, yeah. we decided to go online. Uh, and in that process, I decided, yes, we, well, for the first decision we made was that we wanted to be bold uh, and that we wanted to announce a season, um, even if it was a season for the following summer and get people excited that we are coming back, we're committed to coming back. And then we started to say, well, we should not only uh, be bold, but we should be expansive. Let's do more. Let's not do less. Yeah, uh, because it's not a two-week process anymore. It's you not really a two can yeah, it's not a two-week process. And there were three kind of components to our decision-making. One, we wanted to uh, look at, we live in very troubled times. And uh, uh, the kind of playwrights, our mission is to develop plays that care and dare to speak uh, about the world we live in and the relationship between the individual and social reality. Um, we want to you know, take on the burning issues of our time. <laughs> and if ever there have been a lot of burning issues, it's now, Brett. Literally burning. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, exactly. So, you know, we said, well, we've got a pandemic environmentally, we've got a viral pandemic, and we've got a, a racial pandemic, uh, and a political pandemic. So let's, we, you know, those are the writers we deal with, those are the writers we've cultivated for 20-some years. So we thought, you know, we need to expand and do more and get, get to hear the writers that are re asking us to imagine in a deeper way where we are right now and where we may yeah. be going as a nation. So we expanded. We went to 15 writers. Um, Did you go to them? Or these are all the, these are 15 plays that were submitted before no. the pandemic? Or no. you you have your, um, I don't know what you call them, your, not repertory, but your regulars, who no, the Bill Keynes well, and yeah, Robbie we, Bates. Is. Yeah, people that have had return appearances. But, no, what we decided is that we would do a thing called the first stage workshop project, and that would be bringing online this year uh, seven projects 
that would form the foundation of the workshop new work festival next summer. So we chose those and committed to those. And we're beginning the development in November and December. And then we'll work through the beginning of the year. And hopefully we'll be all in public assembly next summer. And those plays will be the foundation of the summer. But then we now, thought, how different is that going to? Well, just how how different is that going to be with that much lead time for a project? How much more advanced will it be than than what you'll typically encounter at the, you know, the the live performances, which are just so astounding? I cannot believe how how far you can come in two weeks, and I just can imagine what you do in ten months or think, twelve months. I think the community of because we're forming the playwrights, the directors, the dramaturgs, and our senior staff. And we probably will be bringing actors into that process too, off and on, but not in a major way, but they will appear because we want the playwrights to be able to hear their plays even online. Um, I think the community will be deeper and richer in terms of their dynamic the intimacy and profundity of conversation, uh, they'll really know each other and know the plays yeah. and know the challenges each of them have set up for themselves for what do they, they want to accomplish um, in, you know, in the summer. So I just think it's going to be a richer, deeper experience for all of them. Yeah, uh, imagine the opportunities for them as writers to get to know each other and work on bits or whatever comes up or challenges and so forth. It's going to be much different than, you know, the, the two week process. I'm, I'm, I know that, uh, in that workshop process, all the writers can go check on everyone else and see what they're up to. It's not siloed, no, so it's much, not but siloed. now it's going to be, now it's going to be wide open. So I, I just think it's like you're creating a community. Well, it, it's it, we, we do that in the summer, too, and it's intense, and there's a beauty to that uh, yeah. because we're, with, we're together breakfast, lunch, and dinner. But these uh, writers will experience that, but they'll have months of getting to know each other. So I think the anticipation and excitation of actually meeting each other in person is going to be really high uh, and make it even you know, uh, a better two weeks next summer the the other program we started was what we call the foundry project and the foundry project are in some cases plays that came through the process uh but it's mainly we went to the senior artistic staff uh hal brooks casey stangle logan vaughn sasha emerson Jeff Liu, Jay Holtham, uh, Luis Alfaro, uh, uh, you know, all, all, all our, our team. And we said, uh, let's talk about playwrights that may have something that they want to build over four months. Uh, mm. And that's what we're in right now is this foundry project. It is a foundry. So some of them have... Uh, have plays that are early on. Some of them have, have, have plays they've been struggling with forever. Uh, and we're in community, eight playwrights, and we're um, doing the Ojai process. 
and it, it has four phases to it, and it will happen over roughly four months. It started in July, and we're working on the plays, and that's been delightful. And yeah, uh, I love the word foundry. To me, that uh, sounds like hammer it out. Hammer. It is. We're hammering it out, and uh, yeah. those playwrights are um, Anna Ziegler, who's a major American writer, Bill Kane, whom we know from Ohio, Aziza Barnes who brought Blacks to Ojai a few summers ago. And that went on to, to New York and major productions all over the country. Sam Hunter. Yeah, Steppenwolf, right, in Chicago. Yeah, Steppenwolf. Sam Hunter, who just had Greater Clements, which we developed at Ojai, at Lincoln Center. Robbie Bates, uh, who's been with us off and on. Eliza yeah, he's a, he's a rock star. He he's really a rock is star. A, a, he's a He's a cultural icon. Yeah, two-time Pulitzer Prize finalist. Uh, uh, Liza Pal O'Brien, who's been a member of our artistic staff and a reader and has had a play at Ojai in the past. Luis Alfaro, who is another sort of giant figure in yeah, uh, Southern California and American theater. Uh, he's the, the associate producer of Ojai Playwrights Conference. Uh, and Frankie Gonzalez, who's a really great, great uh, writer who's done a play yeah. about the prison industrial complex. So we're dealing with those now. And, uh, and I, so the three prongs of all of this, Brett, is we want to develop plays that are talking in some profound way about the moment we're in and where we're going. We also want to provide support, financial support to artists to keep them going. So we've been out there raising money to pay the playwrights, pay the dramaturgs, pay the directors to keep them uh, in the traces. Yeah. Yeah. And then the final thing is we hope, uh, and our board is really great at this, you know, encouraging us to do this, is we want to ignite activism right now in this moment about to get Mm. people moving and acting to take this country in a forward direction. Well, so, geez, what might that look like? Well, you know, I, I you know, we tried <laughs> not to be too, uh, but we want people to vote for sure. Uh, yeah. We want people to be aware of the environmental pandemic, which we did a big program this summer, uh, and the you know the which we Ohio we've been talking about this forever at the Ohio Playwrights Conference. The ethnic and cultural divide, systemic racism, um, and all the manifestations of that. And you'll see a lot of that in the work we're talking about. And the right have in the past. That's been uh, yeah, a recurring been the, theme. And yeah, you guys seem to have been ahead of that, that discussion. We've been, a, we've been ahead of the curve. And we've been, you know, our, our themes every year. We have a theme, you know, breaking barriers, et cetera, et cetera, which have been you know, about the challenge. And uh, unfortunately, yeah. I don't think enough people heeded the call. And now, the this year's season is called Onward Together. Uh, because I think, you know, one of the big things the writers are talking about is we have to get to a place of oneness where we see the humanity of each other and get this damn uh political divide you know cease it it's 
killing us. Uh, yeah, I don't know how that how that happens. It's like wired well, into our brains. There's just so, so yeah, much. and I think it's it's not, tribal, you know, tribal. It's, it's tribal, and there's a lot of lies and a lot of false mythology going around. And um, but I think you know it's a multi prong attack that needs to happen in our country right now. Certainly on a political level. Uh, certainly on uh, an economic level of district, you know, how we begin to create some kind of equality and equanimity in the economic system. But, you know, look at out of the Middle Ages, out of the Black Plague came the Renaissance. So I think... Yeah, these, um, draw a pretty these, direct line. These, these writers are attempting to imagine the next phase of the cultural historical experiment that is the United States of America. And we are an experiment. Yeah, well, it's interesting when you think that we are the oldest continuous form of government in the world, except for Morocco, which has had like the same dynasty wow. since like the 1200s. You think about it, like Italy, they change their government every few years. France is on their sixth republic since Napoleon. Yeah. Uh, really, uh, we're, we're, this is an experiment and it's been fairly successful i mean we've gone through some different iterations as a culture and transformations but i don't know what is it what is the thing that that brings us together what is this nationhood or sense of identity that americans have what are the things that we you know that we respond to uh you know with one voice do you i mean what do you what do you, you're much closer to that than I am. I'm just, you know. Well, I, you know, I think what I'm hearing discussed uh, more, more. I mean, I, you know, the the writers. I can talk about what the artists are doing, but I think we've dislocated ourselves from a kind of profound civic mor morality and uh, a civility of of viewing each other and how we can create discourse across divide and differences but uh, you know Kasich and i'm not that particularly of a, a religious person but you know there was someone the other night talking about love thy neighbor as thyself uh we we've kind of lost seeing the humanity in each other. There's this oneness I keep talking about. Uh, a set of values, beliefs, and discourses which is in the Constitution. All people are created equal. Uh, all have the same access to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Uh, well, you know, it's a wake-up call. If you're white, maybe that's true. But, you know, and we have lived in our sort of blindness and our privilege and uh now we're hearing that that hasn't been the case for a lot of americans uh and some people see it as a threat uh and some people see it as an opportunity and it, it you know we are a grand mosaic and i a lot of people are resisting that because they see if you know uh people of color uh start to get that equality and and get that equal pursuit of happiness that somehow uh the white people will be threatened and some some kind of zero-sum game this yeah. uh and this 
politics of resentment. Yeah, it's a profoundly un-American attitude. Uh, and there are people well, feed, uh, feeding no, on I'm, it. Yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I'm not. You know, it's it's profoundly an un-American ideal. But look at you know we we've been fighting this battle since the Civil War, since later, or even even beyond. Yeah, even before. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I know how. Um, you know, with Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, he didn't, you know, four score and seven years ago. That was 1776. That was not, as was customary, to date the nation's founding from 1789 when the Constitution was ratified. And that was like uh, him going out on an edge and saying, all men are created equal, which had a lot of controversy surrounding it at that time as you can imagine oh yeah this yeah there's a great book um i didn't reference it uh, we talked or i showed you some things earlier but this uh fiery trial came out several years ago about abe lincoln's uh changing views on slavery at first you know he was a proponent of colonization efforts of which there were many none successful and how in uh early 1860s as the war took a dark turn as he was desperately trying to keep America competitive uh, as a nation and it just like something awoke in him there's just this greater calling I mean this moral imperative that was thrust upon him in which he struggled with and then you know he carried it across the finish line sure Uh, it was really uh Really, a wonderfully constructed book about how anyone can have their their mind and their heart changed. Usually, uh, in the other order, first their hearts get changed. Yeah. Well, now, um, <laughs> and that's and then, what we try to do in the yeah. Team. Or as yeah. we used to say in the military, grab them by the balls, and their hearts will follow. <laughs> but the uh, the other thing I was you know curious about because. This pandemic, this isolation, this solitude is a writer's state. Like this is, this is nothing new for them. I mean, uh, I was had a talk with on another episode about Shakespeare's experiences during the various plagues that went through London. Like the Globe mm. Theater was shut yeah. for seventy percent of the time from sixteen oh three to sixteen. 16- 13 when Shakespeare did some of his best work and how that's the irony for artists is that they have to reflect a culture from which they have to detect themselves to conceive. Mm. And it's just, it just fascinates me. Well, it's a, it's a, it's a kind of profound and interesting dialectic. Uh, yes, they create in isolation, but in some ways, uh, you know, or, or they probably argue with me, but artists have the best of both worlds if they are um, successful in terms of getting their work produced. And that is, they have the luxury of experiencing the world and being out there uh, in community and then going into solitude and writing and creating. But one of the things that has made Ojai so successful is we create artistic community where they can sit uh, in the presence of other writers and have uh, two weeks of breakfast, lunch, and dinner and evenings together 
where they're in discourse because they don't get that very often. Yeah. Um, but and to the, be with their peers. To be with their peers. But then the, 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 the culmination of that is always when you're in the theater. You know, you're in the theater producing your play live in front of an audience. That's why they do it ultimately is that, that act of communication. So that's missing now. Um, it's there in a kind of, you know, vaguely virtual way. But you're not hearing reactions live. You're not hearing the yeah. laugh. Well, if you you're really want a, a demonstration of the limitations of, of social distancing and technology, just have a bunch of people on Zoom sing happy birthday. <laughs> and you hear all the latencies and the signals and the transmissions. And it's just like, yeah. it just like fingernails on a blackboard. Yeah, yeah. It's, and it's like there's no, it's no way to harmonize. Right. Right. The, uh, the one thing we've been discovering online in the virtual world is um, the, we, we're really enjoying being together in the Zoom sessions, which are three hours, twice a week. Whoa, in, that's, a, in, that's a stretch. In the foundry. But what they're missing is in the Zoom space, we have 30 people. We have the playwrights, their directors, their dramaturgs, the actors for that particular project, uh, our production assistants, because we're doing some mentoring of younger artists during this. So there's 30 people there. And by the time the play is read and we have a discussion, you know, it's we're, that what they don't get is that wonderful time they have at dinner, lunch, drinks, where they sit at a table across from two other playwrights and go, let's go deeper into what I heard just now in terms of your feedback. And that conversation at dinner can go on for three or four hours. So that's kind of what we're missing. We're trying to build that back in in some ways right now um, where playwrights have an opportunity to sit uh, in Zoom with just three or four other writers and talk about uh, the, a deeper conversation about what the other writers experienced when they heard their play. Yeah. Are you uh, finding like just through experimentation with these uh, group calls that there's like an optimum number that there's like a, a better process? Is this something that's being refined all the time? We're refining it all the time. Cause we, you know, it was, it was uncharted territory when we got into it. Hal Brooks, uh, who's our, associate one of our associate artistic directors along with logan vaughn and casey stangle um hal just ran uh the cape cod theater project so his mm -hmm. happened and it, he went fully online and had public events and public readings and so it was great to be talking to him on a weekly basis while he was doing that just what he was experiencing um but, you know, it's, he said when he got into rehearsal, that was hard because, you, you know, we're in rehearsal for eight hours a day normally in a room, but you're looking all over the place, right? When you're directing, yeah. you're watching every actor, what they're doing, they're just so many visual cues and social cues that you pick up on. It's totally right. And there's also a lot of relief, right? You can yeah. look out the window, you can space out, you can, you know, you can. 
But in a Zoom setting, you're staring directly <laughs> into the face of each other. So it, it causes a certain kind of Zoom fatigue. Um, yeah. I and you can't that. you can't last as long and you you uh you know you take more breaks and you lose your edge. So yeah, just, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. So uh you know, but it, you know, we're finding our way. It's uh I, well, the optimum number of people were finding no more than 30 in the big community Zoom sessions. Uh, and if you really want to have a conversation, you know, where you dig deeper and can theorize and go off track and just, uh, you know, think, think off the play and, you know, be asked a question like, what, what, what was the inspiration for this play? Dig back in your experience. Uh, tell us about that. That that we find four to six people, no more than that. Oh yeah, that's about a perfect yeah. number for that kind yeah. of intimate conversation. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, I meant to tell you. You talked to our Rotary Club some time ago, and you and you posed the question like, "Where was your first? Where, oh, where did right, you have yeah. like your first? What? How did you uh, word it? I can't. I know what you were, were saying, but I like your first first moment of of like uh inspir or literary or theatrical yeah from a book or, or from a movie or a play or whatever what what uplifted you what transported you what what hit you as uh gosh i'm in a kind of artistic moment and i'm engaged emotionally and intellectually in ways i'm not on a daily basis yeah and, I, and it was surprising <laughs> I, I didn't expect the amount of enthusiasm and, you know, neither, and, neither did I, I know all these people. I was really uh, touched by the, you know, there was like a common thread running through that, that, you know, these, these situations where people, this, I think this is, you know, uh, promotes empathy like yeah. this uh, commonalities. I know for me, um, if you'd asked me at the time, I wouldn't have been able to tell you, but that stuck with me. Obviously, I'm bringing it up again. But there was, a, you know, back in uh, the early 60s, Newton Minow was the head of the FCC, gave that speech about TV was a great cultural wasteland. Right. So they started bringing in different kind of programming because I remember when I was a kid, all the TV shows were basically just toy commercials and stuff. Right. But they they had a, a Japanese movie called Fatty and Skinny, huh. and it was like these two kids who were about eight or ten years old, and Skinny was like the town, uh, the popular kid at the school and in town, and Fatty was the kid who just moved in. He didn't know anybody, but his dad was uh, you know a factory owner or something. He was very wealthy. So Skinny was like always nice to Fatty and got him accepted by the other kids. <clears throat> but you didn't really know, you know, whether he was really his friend or he was just doing it because he would get to go over for dinner and have all these wonderful foods and skin or Fatty always had money for candy and stuff like that. <clears throat> and so that was kind of like at the heart of the play, you know, the, the premise of whether this, this kid is just a false friend. <clears throat> and so, you know, but what, what, and I'm not going to get spoiler, you know, this movie was probably made back in the fifties or something <laughs> for no money, but it was just, uh, I must've been like five or six years old. And I remember being so, Oh, is he, is he really his friend? Is he really a true friend? Yeah. 
and you get your answer and it's a very gratifying one. But what was cool to me was seeing these kids from the other side of the world. You know, we were just poor redneck hillbilly kids growing up in this very small farm town and these deep woods. And, and then you've got these Japanese kids. I think it was a town on Honshu somewhere. And it was uh, just like what we were doing, climbing trees and splashing in the creek. And, you know, everything that was our daily experience was the same for these kids. And I just thought, well, that's, that's something that, that the theatrical arts can do that is, you know, this is 55 years or something. This has been with me. I think that's, yeah. that's, uh, yeah, that stuck with me. That was a good, good, uh, setup for, for the, for your talk. Yeah. They were, they were, uh, human like you, you, yeah. you, exper you experienced oneness. Yeah. I think that's the goal, isn't it? Maybe you, you were talking earlier about this, uh, finding this unity i think you know something that i don't know you know kim maxwell of course she's a, she's a treasure but she in her writing and acting classes always says that the more specific something is to one person the more it applies to everyone huh. <clears throat> and it sounds counterintuitive but it's not like you relate to the specificity of people's circumstances much more than you do like abstract notions and uh, just really that stuck with me. I thought that was. Really, well, I, uh, I say that to young writers all the time is, you know, write from your experience. And they go, oh, my experience is so unimportant. And I go, no, the most pedestrian thing in your life is artful. You know, it is your profundity. All you have to do is take it to the foundry, fashion it in the right way. Hammer it out. Hammered out, get up, have confidence in what you're doing. We'll help you do that. But people will connect. When I would bring the gang members up from LA to do uh, their various uh, shows that they did at Ojai Playwrights Conference, like in Matilla Hall, um, you know, they were freaking out before they went on stage. No one cares oh, about man. us. No one wants to hear our story. No, no, no. I said, just trust me, just wait. And, you know, they would do their monologues and and share their lives they really worked hard on writing it they worked hard on bringing it together in performance and i remember one night in ojai the audience gave them a 20 minute standing ovation um and the feedback was just incredible again they saw their humanity and recognized it uh, they couldn't demonize yeah them. <laughs> uh, well i think it's that that very specific moments of whatever it is that connects with people that really uh that's what it's all about just making that connection from one one brain one heart to another so, yeah and uh, and, yeah. and sometimes you know that what happens on the stage is very difficult it's very challenging uh in some cases it's shocking in terms of what's happening emotionally uh in terms of values and beliefs because the author has intended that because they know yeah. they need to, you know, push shock people. people, push people to get them out of the ruts of perception that they're in. Um, yeah. I'm thinking last summer we had that great play, Tambo and, and Bones. 
which is now getting productions when we get back out of the pandemic all over the country. And Dave Harris wrote, you know, an extremely challenging play. It was a very stark warning to America that if we don't start to address the racial divide, it ain't going to end up well. It's going to end up violent. Uh, and guess what? <laughs> Look where we are. Yeah, I know. I just, I don't even know where I came across this, but some Fran Spannon, uh, not a, or like a piece of an essay or something that somebody was quoting about how if you don't treat, it was like some, some, the Algerians were being, you know, the French, uh, media was portraying the Algerians as barbaric and inhumane for probably good reasons. And Franz Fanon's uh, observation was, well, you can't uh, treat people as less than human and then expect them to be more than human when it comes to restraint and, and you know, the baser impulses. It's like you created this level of expectation. It's like, I was like, wow, you know, you're right. That's, you know, if you treat people as human, then you're going to get a more humane uh behavior sure and and i think the uh look at i'm i'm not a pollyanna i'm aware we have real serious problems in the world you know if you've if you've subjugated someone oppressed them kept them silent uh you know uh kept resources away from them educationally uh in terms of uh, the medical industry medical care uh access to jobs, you know, they're going to be angry. They're going to be angry and they're going to act out and there's probably going to be violence. But having said that, uh, in one of the Gulf Wars, there's a really wonderful novelist and poet named Ariel Dorfman, who is originally from Chile and now is a professor at Duke University. And he wrote an essay that appeared in the New York Times And he said, one of the major problems of the world today is a lack of imagination. Tony Kushner, the author of Angels in America, said the same thing to me. And the way R.L. Dorfman said it, until our soldiers on the front line can imagine the person across that sand dune from them is a father, a husband, a son a brother, just like we are, this will never end. Yeah, it's, that's, the, that's the moment where if you start othering people, that's where the tracks and we have div- a president, diverge. We have a president right now that is, if he, he's probably only good at one thing, and that's that. He knows how to other people. Yeah. And he knows how to divide people. Unfortunately, it's a successful strategy. I'm, it is I'm because, hoping. because yeah. of, uh, you know, there's a deep, there's, you know, you, you bring fear into the picture. Someone's going to take your job. Someone's going to take your community. Someone's going to take your house. Look at the, the, the Irish were subjected to that kind of otherness. The Italians, uh, Jews, uh, blacks, uh, lat, lat, Latinos, Latinx, uh, transgender people, gay people. It's just, you know, it's, it's, we've got 
to recognize our com- commonality, which is common humanity. Well, I think uh, that's the part of the Playwrights Conference. Well, it's I totally the Playwrights Con- Conference mission. Uh, and we do it every year in different ways, you know. it's uh, we've been Well, yeah, extreme- different this year for sure. Yeah, and we've been extremely successful over the 20 years. Had plays that have gone to Broadway, beyond, all over the world. Uh, and the, as I say, the artists that really have something to say uh, always want to come back. Um, yeah, I'm trying to remember. Oh, uh, Stephen Adley Gerges. That guy just blows me away. I just, yeah. whatever he writes, I'm going to be all over that. I he was going to come. He was going to, he was going to come back this year. Uh, but um, he got, sidetracked and otherwise engaged with other projects but he wanted to come back so well hopefully well, we'll i'm see glad, to, glad to hear he's busy he is busy. that guy he's, he's uh that guy somebody's got to stand over him and keep him at the desk and keep cranking out because he's got a fertile brain he he, he does, really does. He, yeah 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 so what about you what's your background where did you come from Robert? i know a little uh, bit about you but uh i grew up in uh washington dc um Inside the Beltway? Basically on the Beltway. I was in Silver Spring downtown, kind of Silver Spring, right outside the district. And then I was went to an inner city high school. Uh and uh, you know, it was not the same high school as uh Dave Chappelle. Didn't he go to uh performing arts high school in Washington, uh, DC? Yeah, he went to, remember we did the word begins, Seku the Misfits, Seku Andrews? He went to the same, I think it was the Duke Ellington School of the Performing Arts. That's right. Uh, yeah. No, I went, I wasn't so lucky. <laughs> I, I went to an inner city Jesuit high school called Gonzaga. Um, okay. But there was, a, a, you know, a, I was a football player and also in the Dramatic Society and I was, an odd fact of history at Gonzaga, I was inducted into the Football Hall of Fame. And, and really, what was your position? I was a split end. I was a receiver, and uh, and this year I was supposed to be inducted into the Theater Hall of Fame. Um, oh my goodness! At my high school, yeah. So, um, but it was um, you know the '60s, late '60s, and uh, there was a lot of violence, tremendous racism in the city. Washington D.C. was almost like apartheid city it was um, very south very, very yeah. separated um and that kind of woke me up i had a series of very violent uh incidents that happened in, to me and around me and i sort of made a decision as a 14 or 15 year old i'm either going to live in hate or i'm going to try to understand uh why this situation is the way it is and I had an encounter where uh, there was a, a moment of violence that had been perpetrated on me and my friends. Uh, pretty bad. Uh, some people got knifed. Some got chain whipped. He got jumped. Yeah, someone got shot. And uh, oh, there was a, a black police lieutenant who was investigating the case. And they took me out of high school and brought me into the station. And the police lieutenant said to me, I know who did it to you guys, uh, this gang. And one of them sitting out there in the hallway. Uh, And I said to the guy, I said, listen, I I think I was 14. And I said, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, 
I have one question. Why me? And he said, I am not excusing what happened in any way, shape, or form. But you have a group. These were young men. They were in their 20s. Late oh, they weren't teen. They weren't uh, teenagers. No, they were not teenagers, and they were uh, African American. And he said, uh, "You have my father was an FBI agent. My mother was a social worker. It was mm-hmm. as low on the white collar level you could get. You know, we had no money. I had to wear a suit coat and tie to school, so I had one suit coat, one tie, one dress shirt, and I had a bag that said Gonzaga on it because I was coming back from a basketball game when this happened." And he said, again, I'm not excusing what they did, but that suit coat you have, that tie you have, that shirt you have, that bag you have that says Gonzaga on it is more than these guys will ever have in their entire lives. And they're angry. And that conversation changed my life. Um, and I am <laughs> doing what I'm doing today as well, a result. That's of amazing. That. Do you remember his name? Have you ever had a conversation, follow up with him? No, never saw him again. Never saw him again. Yeah. Um, But then, you know, it was, uh, I grew up in D.C. And then I went to Boston College and uh, uh, played a little bit of football there. But then became captain of the rugby team. Uh, I started to move away from that culture, uh, the jock culture. It really upset me and particularly their attitudes toward women. And Well, the locker, locker room talk. When, uh, Trump made that, yeah, you know, made that. I was like, you know what? You're right. I was a jock too, and that was a locker room culture. That's what people say. Yeah, it was. It was not very. It was not very kind and generous and understanding and toward women or people of color. So I got out and I played rugby, which was a great, great group of men for a great yeah, fraternity. Your scrum. Yeah. So then I did that, and then I got a scholarship to Oxford University, uh, and I went there to Trinity College and had one of the greatest tutors in the world, a man named Terry Eagleton, who taught me aesthetics, and he was a Marxist, and it was he taught me Marxist aesthetics. And so I continued my digging deeper and deeper into the relationship between art and social reality, art and action, art and changing the world. And then I went to Stanford into their PhD program and continued that work and directing and then got a great job at the University of Washington running their PhD program in aesthetics. And while I was there, I was hired away to become the associate artistic director at the Seattle Rep. And that is where I focused and that, that was it for you, huh? Like you well, no, just... and I, 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 I like to think I'm a person as both in the in, in the practice of theater, but I also have uh, a great love for the intellectual side of the theater, the the academy, um, and many in, people in my profession don't like them at all. Uh, but I yeah. don't have a problem. I love I love both sides of it and do a lot of teaching taught at Stanford, UCLA, USC, um, and, uh, you know, uh, and then, and have, uh, a lot of the people that have surrounded me at Ojai are similar people that have had that journey. I, I was fortunate to run, be the producing artistic director at the Mark Tabor Forum for 20 years. Um, uh, and you know, what I think most people kind of concur was their golden era, Angels in America, Oh, and yes. a lot of the people that you see at Ojai 
today, Luis Alfaro, uh, Robbie Bates, uh, were people that, um, uh, you know, I'm Bill Kane that I, I met there and the relationships continue. Um, I think, I think the yeah, artists you've got your community. That's pretty cool. Well, the artists know our heart is in the right place. Um, yeah, that, that goes a long way. And that we really do care about community. We do really care about uh, trying to change the world we live in to make it somewhat better. Yeah, it's like the struggle never ends. But yeah. The, well, what's been, the alternative? Well, it's, it's uh, yeah, it's the struggle surfaces and a lot of things are surfacing now that have been um, around for a long time. But, you know, the, vi the viral pandemic is new in terms of the big, you know, we've had them before, but it's new in this moment. And Well, you I can, think this is pandemic's an interesting prism because even like environmental issues, and I had oh this talk God. with uh, Eric Good because the proximity of these live animal markets and the stress under which these animals live, they should... It, they shed virus as a result of these stressors. Yeah. And then it makes that zoonotic uh, transfer, and we don't know. Well, you know the who other, knows the, what other other dread diseases are out there? The other, this one seems to... Yeah, go ahead. The, the other thing that, just on that tangent, is, you know, I, I did a, a lot of work in the environmental movement for a long time. I I worked for an organization called Green Cross International, Global Green USA, mm -hmm. which was Mikhail Gorbachev's organization. And I was uh, in the American, North American branch. And I, I made, I produced and directed and made a lot of media for them for their big award ceremonies and, and, and their, you know, kind of social media campaigns. So I've been on this battlefront for a long time. Um, and it gets back to what I was saying in the beginning about oneness. Uh, there was a time in the early Christian church where, where women had a big voice before Rome took over. Uh, For the Council of Nicaea. Yeah, well, I think, yeah, whatever. There was a third century something. Uh, but the, 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 there, um, their principle was we see God in all living things. We see God in all living things, not just in Catholics, not just in those that are baptized in the Catholic Church. We see God in all living things. Well, that includes nature. That includes people that look different than us. That would have been a very different church if it had, but my understanding is women ran that church and the men sort of drove them out and it became about hierarchies and popes and, you know, all this stuff. Uh, but, yeah, something like but when I was working for in the Green Cross International and Global Green, that feeling and knowledge came back to me. We've lost the ability to see that we come from the earth and we go back to the earth. There's a reason it's called Mother Earth. We are made yeah. of the earth and we do nothing but denigrate it and ourselves 
on a daily basis, you know. We we are so arrogant. Um, and and you, you take that attitude and spread it out. But yeah. um, but I think that it comes back to we have to begin to see the oneness of the world. I know Sufism is built heavily on that. Um, but you know, I'm I'm uh, you know, you continue the battle. Uh, it's kind of been my life's work ever since I had that encounter in that police station. Although my, you know, my parents brought me up that way um, and encouraged me to do something with my life that was more than, you know, punching a clock and just making a lot of money. And those opportunities did present themselves. And I always went in this other direction because I was always so moved by culture, art, dance, uh, novels, you know. Poetry, it's just the humanity is just so rich. Yeah, um, just even so just like watching these these food shows I've been watching, it's just like <laughs> gives you like insight into how people live their lives, and it's really fascinating. Well, yeah, an understanding of other cultures, and it, and it's such a privilege to be able to uh, collaborate with the community in Ojai. You know, Brett, you've been on the board, and uh, we're more of a family than we are of uh you know uh oh it's, a, it's great yeah i was just we'll, we'll wrap up here in a minute but i just wanted to ask you how you came to the ohio players conference and how you saw the potential there to do what you've done and i remember some years there's like two or three plays that went off to broadway and uh you know that Stephen Adley Gerges play that yeah. motherfucker with the hat and uh, yeah yeah and, and I think uh, other desert cities eclipse, came out of that year eclipse, too eclipse went to Broadway Denai Guerrero other desert cities went to Broadway Fun Home went to Broadway and won tons of Tony Awards oh that was great you know but you know we've had uh, uh, we've been fortunate enough to have our plays produced all over the world uh, uh, on in many many different venues. Um, but when I was running, when I was the producing artistic director at the Taper uh, in the God late '90s, uh, I was there since '83, and then I left in 2003. But in the late '90s, um, I got a call. Well, I was asked to go there and develop a play, and it was a play I'd been working on, which we may bring back to Ojai by mm. Lynn Manning. Uh, called Middle Passage, and Lynn unfortunately passed away. But he was a, a uh, an amazing, amazing guy, blind black poet uh, and great artist, playwright. Uh, and he he wrote a, a really great play about his foster home experience. That we began there, and it needs more work. And you know, and I promised some people when Lynn passed that I would pick up the mantle and we would continue to develop it. Uh, so I went there, and then I went home. Uh, and quite frankly, in those days, when I went up there, I drove home every night because there was nothing to do. There was well, no, no traffic. Yeah. Well, there was no traffic, and there was no program. <laughs> you know, you, yeah. you you worked on your play. It was a sort of a five day thing, um, but there was no community. There wasn't all this the layers of what we're doing now. So um, I got a call a year later, and from Helen and Bruce Botnick, and they said. Uh, our artistic director is leaving, going to another job. I think this man got a job at the Denver Theater Center. Would you be interested in being our artistic director? And I thought, hmm, no. Uh, <laughs> I've got my hands full with my life in L.A. 
But then I thought there's so many projects that I couldn't get into the pipeline at the taper. Oh, there you go. Yeah. That I wanted to work on. And so many artists that were considered at that time fringe and, you know, not, you know, we have an, uh, we had an 800 seat venue. You had to, you know, you had to, you had to Pack put place. In, yeah. Yeah. You had to put place in the, there's the, no black box at the Mark taper there. We had a, uh, a second stage called Taper Two, but uh, uh, that we only did like four plays in that venue. We had no Kirk Douglas at that time, um, but we did have a new work festival, which I started, and mm-hmm. we were doing sixteen plays a year. So sixteen plays were coming out of that program with nowhere to go. Uh, so I thought, man, the ones that we're really excited about, let's bring them up to Ohio and work on them. And Helen and Bruce said, "Great, wonderful." Um, so then I went my first summer and I, and I, I I also said to them, if you agree to do this with me, this program is going to change completely. Uh, it's, it's gotta be more of a sense of community. So I had been doing play development for, you know, decades. So I had this image in my head of what it should be. So, um, you know, I brought a bunch of my colleagues up. Luis Alfaro came in the beginning, Che Yu, Diane Rodriguez, who unfortunately recently passed. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bill Kane came into the mix. Sam Hunter was in those early days. And we kind of all collaborated and made it what it is today. And now we're, we go twice as long. We have much more volunteerism. We're much more engaged with the community. Uh, we do a big benefit every year. Um, the board is yeah. Expanded. It's one of the best parties of the year. I'm yeah. sure you know that we're yeah. a small town, but we have some really good fun. Yeah, um, I love but that. that's something I just look, really look forward to. Yeah, so we're um, you know we're going to take the gala benefit at least part of it to LA this year, and we're going to do another uh, half of it up in Ojai. Uh, so we're we're we we have partnerships that are forming that I can't speak about, but you'll hear about. Mm-hmm. Um, with um uh, another theater who's going to be because we've always wanted to do some of our work in la and and what you're seeing right now this summer is a little glimmer of where we think opc is going and that is we're doubling our efforts so half of our plays will be developed in ojai and uh, another half of our plays will be developed in la and there'll be a lot of cross fertilization between the two platforms um so you know we're excited we're growing yeah that's a lot and i you know my colleague at the mark taper forum uh was gordon davidson who was one of our opc Uh, award winners lived in ojai at the end of his life i no i'm not sure he did but you may be right um well he was like respite care at uh uh, yeah yeah a friend of mine was uh, took, took care of him okay well gordon was he was my mentor one uh, in my he part, was a luminary uh, and my partner he was he was one of the founders of the American theater movement and when we hit during my twenty years at the taper these really severe economic crisis uh, like we're going to be seeing soon here oh man uh, the other shoe has not dropped yet no people. it has not and when that happened <laughs> Gordon always said. You know, I was sort of the responsible one. Okay, now we have to realize, is this, uh, we have to do cuts. We, and are these systemic? Is this going to be ongoing? Or is this just in this moment? And Gordon went, no, 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 no. 
this is the time to think big. This is the time for us to grow. And that's what we've done. You know, I learned that. Now's the time to grow. Um, yeah, never and, let a good crisis go to waste. And trust me, the American theater world, the playwrights of America are aware of what we've done. You know, that we didn't go small and shrink and walk away. We've responded to the challenges of diversity, representation, uh, and just numbers of keeping the work going and supporting the the the, the big daring visionaries in the yeah. American theater. You know, once you know. more into the breach. Once more into the breach. I agree. Yeah. Well, um, thank you, Robert. You've been great. We didn't get around to talking about the Civil War, but maybe in a few months. Uh, well, we'll come back. I'll, I'll get you again. back on, and we'll just we'll just do that that portion. I think that would yeah. actually be kind of fun because. You grew up around those battlefields, and you have a lot, lot of context for that. And my, my hometown is very tiny, but it was a very key part Where of the was your underground hometown? near uh, Buffalo, oh, okay. uh, Chautauqua oh. County. Very, very. Oh, rural. yeah, that's where my, uh, that's where my dad was born. In Chautauqua, he was in... born. My uncle had a, um, a sport fishing lodge on Lake Chautauqua. Oh my goodness! For muskies. Yep, he had them nailed on his tree, and my father grew up eh, an hour away in Dunkirk, New York. On oh, Lake that's Erie. I'm in Forestville. That's ten miles away. Yeah, but my, yeah, for, my for, grandfather was the night foreman of the Erie Lackawanna locomotive factory that built the locomotives, oh, and yeah. ultimately became a Democratic kind of party boss, and was the mayor of Dunkirk, New York. Oh my goodness! Yeah, that's a small. That is a small world. But then you get both ends of the Civil War because that the the free black communities were just on the other side of Lake Erie. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, Harriet Tubman and all those people came and yeah. went through that area because yeah. it was just easy to get across. It was like you know, just twenty miles. You could row across the lake in like three or four hours. Really, well, the, really the, the, interesting the stories of uh, not only the Civil War, but I'm beginning i i i become really interested in reconstruction <laughs> what a disaster oh, that my was goodness. you and gotta read grant's uh that that ron chernow book about grant oh i will he go he goes deep into the reconstruction period and how everything went off the rails in that awful election in 1876 with samuel tilden and rutherford hayes and it's yeah and how dark dark time the Ku Klux Klan formed in that period is, the, you know, to. Well, to, to Grant's credit, he shut them down pretty, pretty quickly. He did a good job in shutting it down. The next iteration of the Klan uh, that came out of Birth of a Nation, that yeah. was just like a multi-level team. That was a yeah. total con job. It's so yeah. funny. Yeah. But anyway, you can tell there's a lot of fertile, fertile conversation. Yes, materials Brad, there. thank you very much. <laughs> thank you for support of OPC. Yeah, thanks, Robert. It's great okay. talking with you, and we'll see you around the campus. Yeah, and, and tell people to go to our website, uh, ohioplays.org, or ohioplays.org, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and they'll see what activities are coming up, because we may be uh, opening up a lot of these uh, projects, the culminating moments, final offerings to the public, and you'll, they'll be able to see how to see them. Yeah, it's very exciting. I can't yep. wait. Okay, thanks, Rob. Thank you. All right, All right, we'll talk soon. Bye. Just thinking out loud. 
In my conversation with Robert Egan, we kept coming back to how America seems on edge, uncertain, uneasy, as if the pandemic and social unrest are just the opening moments of a chaotic age in which all our comfortable notions of America as a beacon of democracy are at risk. We seem fragile, on edge, and vulnerable to people who speak to our fears and not our hopes. The comedian Dave Chappelle is one of the few people who seem to recognize this danger and to find a way to express this state of mind with humor and insight. He said at an event last year, I don't want to live in a country with a brittle spirit. Neither do I, Dave. That's it for this episode of Ojai Talk of the Town. We'll keep an ear out for you.